This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, was Charles Lechmere Jack the Ripper? Now, the contention is that um, Robert Paul actually interrupted him in the act and that's why they're not on display because he, he pulled the dress down over the abdominal wings to cover them up and this is the only instance where someone was seen standing by the victim before they'd raised the alarm in all the other cases someone finds a body they go off and find a policeman straight away or something like that Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Riminus. Thank you for joining me. It's so great to have as my guest today, Edward Stowe. He is a Jack the Ripper expert. He was the main advisor on the documentary Jack the Ripper, The New Evidence. And he is the host of a YouTube channel called The House of Lechmere. Great to have you here with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. The the documentary is also known as Jack the Ripper, the missing evidence. Depend, it's they they rebrand it and call it different things. But yeah, Jack the Ripper, the new evidence, or Jack the Ripper, the missing evidence. Okay, uh, good to clarify. So, when did you first become a student of this case? Well, in depth, about ten years ago, I've I've had an interest in it. A more superficial interest in it since I was a child, but I really got into it properly about ten ten years ago in in detail, which was actually a consequence of my partner being interested in um, in her family, her family history, and always googling her families, her different families, her uncle, you know, different names in her family, and one of them is her mother's maiden name her mother's maiden name is Lechmere oh wow and that's how I got into it basically she looked she she this the connection of this character called Charles Lechmere to Jack the Ripper in the Jack the Ripper story he's known as Charles Cross because that's the name he gave he features in the murder of Polly Nichols the first of the five canonical 
generally accepted murders. He was one. He 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 is one of the first characters that we meet in the story of the murder of Polly Nichols, but under the name Charles Cross. And it was only discovered that his real name was actually Charles Lechmere about, um, I don't know, 10 years ago ish. And, uh, maybe a little bit more, maybe a few years more than 10 years ago by people doing genealogical research and looking uh, because things like ancestry, I don't know. Do you have ancestry in America? Is that an American thing as well? Ancestry? Yes, we sure do. Okay, it's probably a worldwide thing, isn't it, I guess? And uh, people people have more access to who people were than, they, than the police did at the time uh, because you can look at it all up from the comfort of your home and find out interconnections and where people are, where they moved and all sorts of through electoral rolls being digitised, through birth, death, marriage records, censuses. You can track people down more efficiently now where people were living in 1888 or that period than, than, than people could at the time. So someone tracked down and found that this person, Charles, this witness or this character, this personality in the uh, murder of Polly Nichols wasn't actually called Charles Cross. His name was Charles Lechmere, and that happens to be her mother's maiden name as well. She's actually a descendant of his. Interesting. So you have a very... Uh personal connection to all of this yeah i'm a bit of a skeptic whenever she comes to me and says, oh i found this out whenever she tells me anything my immediate reaction uh, i shouldn't really perhaps say this my immediate reaction is that's probably going to be a load of rubbish and uh, but i looked into the um case of this person well i'll give you another example in her family history her, her family are from the east end the east end of london and the, and it, uh, lots of east end families have family uh, oral traditions about uh, have you heard of the craze the gangs gangland family called the craze i have not okay well in british term you know, you've got the mafia and stuff haven't you and the um bonnie and clyde and stuff like that in al capone in british gangster terms the craze are the biggest name they're the most famous gangland name of a criminal family in britain but I guess it doesn't tra- transfer over the Atlantic because they're fairly small beer compared to uh, uh, <laughs> some of your your gangsters. And um, so you're, that's probably why you haven't heard them. But in our terms, they are. So most, and they were from the East End. So most families or pr- people from the East End would have a Cray story. Anyway, but because they're, they're in the folklore, they're in the folklore of the East End and everyone would have a Cray story. Everyone would have a story about the Blitz, you know, in the war when the Germans bombed uh, the East End quite heavily. There, there's, there's certain stories where Pete and the docks, the docks of London were based in the East End. Everyone had docks stories about stealing stuff from the docks and stuff like that. The East End's full of mythology and stories. And Jack the Ripper's from the East End. So people, if there's any possible connection to Jack the Ripper, people say, well, my family used to live in the East End. They used to reckon they know who did it and all this sort of stuff. People who live in the East End are full of these sorts of stories. It's a sort of that's the sort of place it was. But they had they knew nothing about the, their family's connection to Jack the Ripper. But one of their stories, for example, they had um, an officer, uh, a captain who's, who was with Nelson at um, the Battle of Trafalgar. That's one of the family traditions. And at the time, I thought that doesn't sound realistic because they're, they're they're quite a poor family living in the East End to be a 
you know, a hundred years before having a captain at, in the Battle of Falga seems a big drop in social standing sort of thing. Um, but I looked it up and there was, there was a, a captain Lechmere, but he wasn't at Trafalgar. He, he missed the battle because he had to go to a court martial for another officer and someone else, his second in command took in, uh, was in charge of his ship at the Battle of Trafalgar. But he was, there was a captain Lechmere in, that was in Nelson's fleet. So their, their family traditions are fairly well established, but they knew, they knew nothing about the fact that their great grandfather was one of the main witnesses in the, the Jack Ripper case. So I've done two episodes on Jack the Ripper before, but just in case there are people out there who haven't heard them, don't remember, don't know who Jack the Ripper is, or would just like a quick refresher. Okay. Could you yeah. summarize the case for us briefly? Was that with um, Tom Westcott both times, or did you do one with Tom Westcott? Uh, one with Tom Westcott and one with... Donald Rumbelow. Oh, that's right. Okay, you did start tell me, actually. Yeah, well, the Jack the Ripper case, it's in 1888 in Victorian London, in the East End of London, which is was a sort of poor district, very overcrowded, very dirty area, dark and gloomy streets, poorly lit streets. There were middle-class pockets as well, but the, the, it had the largest concentration of um, lodging houses, which is where people would sleep when they didn't have a pro- proper accommodation for themselves, individual, and you know many multiple people per room, a few pence per night. It's where you would le- le- stay if you were like an itinerant labourer or something like that, or a, you know basically a dosser or even a beggar who managed to beg a few pence. So it's, they had a very large concentration of, of these places, which were sort of commonly called doss houses. Uh, it had a large concentration of prostitutes, street prostitutes as well. So it was, it was quite a poor crime-infested area. And during that period, it's called the Autumn of Terror. From August the 31st up to November the 9th, there were five murders which are commonly attributed to Jack the, the, Jack the Ripper. Five uh, prostitutes killed uh, in a very gruesome and bloody way carved up with knife, with a knife or knives even. And um, they're, they're known as the Jack the Ripper murders. The name Jack the Ripper itself only appeared halfway through that sequence when a letter was received by the, a news agency signed Jack the Ripper uh, and claiming responsibility for the crimes. Uh, and there's been controversy ever since, whether it was a hoax, perhaps even written by a, a newspaper man to help, because these these murders became a sensation and sold newspapers. It was the beginning. It's often regarded as the beginning of the sensationalization of newspaper stories to sell with the newspapers competing with each other for a more and more sensationalized headline. But they'd also have newsboys selling the newspaper by shouting out whatever the gory title would be, you know, latest murder in Whitechapel to sell papers. And, and so there's a theory that uh, that it was made up by a newspaper man. The name was made up by a new, because it's quite catchy, isn't it, Jack the Ripper, to uh, to sell papers. But there's other theories that it was a genuine letter. I, I tend to think it was probably, there's a good, good argument that it was a genuine letter and was from the culprit. But there's, there's different schools of thought on that. So there's five official murders. Polly Nichols was the first one. 
Um, the next one was Annie Chapman, a few, um, eight days later. The next, there was two on one night, Liz Stride and Catherine Eddowes. Uh, that's called the double event because there was two on the same day, and that's roughly when the letter was received. And then the last one's called uh, was Mary Kelly in November, and um, that's the five. But there are other murders. The, the police had a file called the Whitechapel murder file, which had all these murders in it. They had a separate file on each murder, but the overall file was called the Whitechapel murder file. And there's other murders in there, some of which are, you know, different people think are or aren't part of attributable to Jack the Ripper. And different policemen thought different ones were. They're, the only reason the five are regarded as a group is because a policeman some years later called Melville McNaughton wrote a memorandum in which he, he he said there was just those five and the others weren't part of the sequence. But other policemen who are, he wasn't actually even working at Scotland Yard at the time of the murders, but uh, he had access to the files. So he said there was the five, but other policemen, equally senior and some more involved in the junior, but more involved on the ground in the case, thought there was, you know, others should have been added to the tally because there were others. There was, for example, there's one called by Emma Smith is the first one in the file. That was in April of 1888. Then you've got um, one called Martha Tabram, on the beginning of uh, August 1888. And then there was another one called, uh, a woman called Rose Milet, killed in um, December 1888. Then you've got into the next year, 1889, there were more. There was one, uh, Alice McKenzie. Then there was a thing called the Pynchon Street Torso, which was found in, in the Whitechapel area. And then the last one was uh, Francis Coles a few years later. So th- there's, there's quite a few that you can add or subtract to the, to the tally. And also concurrently, I mentioned the Pinchin Street torso. There were a series of torso murders going on in London at the time where body parts were found uh, from uh, 1887. There was four torsos. The Pinchin Street torso was one of them between 1887 and uh, 1889, which you, some people think, I think, were part of you know, the same guy, did it? But uh, so the Jack the Ripper murders were those five. Most people accept the five that I mentioned to start with. But there are others you can add or subtract depending. Often it depends on who your suspect is. You can't have you can't attribute these murders to your suspect if your suspect was locked up at the time when one of the later ones was committed, you know, <laughs> uh, or perhaps wasn't in the con- wasn't in the country at the right time or something like that. So often the, num- the number of murders that pe- different people think were committed by Jack the Ripper often depends on their suspect and whether that suspect could have done them or not, rather than uh, subjectively looking to see whether it's likely that the uh, murder would have been committed by the same person. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when did Charles Lechmere become a suspect? Who who put the pieces together? How did it happen? Well, a couple of researchers sort of half-heartedly looked at him a bit about 15 years ago and made the connection through, as I said, through genealogical research because the character Charles Cross, from the he, he appeared at the inquest of Polly Nichols. So and he's in a couple of police reports. So the bare bones of the information we know about him, his address, for example, is known from from the police report and one newspaper. There's one newspaper had his address. 
which was a, a road called Doveton Street, and that appears in a police report as well. So you've got that bit of information, Charles Cross, 22 Doveton Street, and he was a carman as well. That's the other piece of information. A carman is someone who is like a, a, a van driver now, a, a delivery person who, de- who used a horse and cart to make deliveries, parcels and stuff, or goods. Could be beer, could be anything really, packages, could be anything from shop to shops or whatever. Like a van driver, which is actually the most common occupation for a serial killer nowadays. But he was a carman. Right, the newspaper stories at the time had his name down confusingly as different things. Some had him down as George Cross. The common name was Cross because he, he gave his name in a... Um, in a court, in an inquest, where obviously it was noisy, he may have not said the words very clearly, he may have muttered or mumbled. And so the different newspapers, there the there was about 10 or 12 different journalists we, at the inquest of Polly Nichols. We know that because there's been an analysis done of the different accounts in the different newspapers to find the unique, uniquely different aspects in the different ones and how they've worded and, worded and phrased it. There was about 12. And... Only one got his address. Some called him, for example, you, see, you get early books on the Jack the Ripper thing, calling him George Cross, because I believe, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think the Times, which is usually regarded as a paper of record, their journalist happened to get his name wrong and called him George Cross. So lots of early books called him George Cross. And that some gave his middle name, which was Alan. Some gave it wrongly as Andrew. So there's all these different combinations between Charles Cross, Charles Andrew Cross, Charles Allen Cross, or George Cross. And but the police report did have his name properly as Charles Allen Cross, 22 Dutton Street. And from that, and we know he was a carman. So they looked it up and found that there was someone at um, 22 Dutton Street who was a carman called Charles Allen Lechmere. So that pretty much told you that it was the right guy. And the final nail in the coffin, actually, it was the pen, this is the penultimate nail in the coffin. The penultimate nail in the coffin is that he had a stepfather. His mother, um, his father abandoned him when he was, or abandoned the family when he was about one or something. And he was brought up just by his mother until he was about eight or something like that, about eight, when she remarried actually bigamously because she had her husband was still alive she bigamously married a, a policeman called thomas cross and lived with him and then he, he died a few years later and but the interesting thing is thomas cross was about 10 years younger than his mother so his mother had two kids she had, he had a sister so she had two kids and she and she was in her 30s and she married a policeman about in his early 20s, 20, 10 years younger than her. Most of the victims of Jack the Ripper were in her situation. They, they were abandoned women who had kids and stuff and turned to drink and then turned to prostitution. Whereas Lechmere's mother actually managed to marry a policeman, which is a pretty secure occupation to have for a husband. He, he, this policeman, Thomas Cross, took on a woman 10 years older than himself, plus with two kids in tow. So it's, it's a bit of a strange situation. Anyway, in the 1861 census, Charles Lechman was about 11, Thomas Cross filled or told the census enumerator 
the, the children were called, um, he was called Charles Cross. So on the 1861 census, he's down as Charles Cross. It's the only time in his life he's down as Charles Cross. And so that told you, that was the fight, that was, I say, that was the penultimate nail in the coffin to show that Charles Cross and Charles Lechmere were the same people because of the 1861 census when this stepfather, who died a few years later, he'd been dead 18 years by the time uh, of the Jack the Ripper murders, 19 years. And uh, Lechmere had always called himself Lechmere subsequently in, in every record since then. But he turned up at the uh, inquest and turned, called himself Cross, which was named after his long dead stepfather. His mother had also remarried again by then, so she was called Fosdyke by this stage. But uh, he uh, he borrowed his long dead stepfather's name to call himself Charles Cross. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So, uh, Charles Lechmere, what connection uh, does he have to the case? Well, I'll just tell you quickly, the, the, the final nail in the coffin, which was the thing that I found, was that he had moved for, he always lived near his mother in a, 
a slightly different part of the East End, about a mile away. But he moved away in June 1888. He moved to Doveton Street. So that put his route to work. He, he, he worked at Pickford's, which is a removal firm. Now, sorry, now it's a removal firm. Then it was like a haulier. That's why he was a carman. They were a business working at a station called Broad Street Station, which was a big goods station. So lots of goods was brought down from the rest of the country to London to, for the uh, London uh, shops and the economy in London. All the trains turned up at a Broad Street station full of all different goods that need to be transported onwards to shops and businesses in London. And his job was a carman delivering those goods. His route to work from his new place in Doveton Street, where he just moved to, took him down Bucks Row, which is the road where where Polly Nichols was murdered. So what happened was in the early hours of the morning on the 31st of uh, August 1888, Polly Nichols, who was a street prostitute, basically, not to sugarcoat it, she was drunk. She'd been drinking pretty much all day. She had been earning money through prostitution and spending it and drink. And come the end of the night, she uh, spent it all and didn't have her room for one of these lodging houses that I mentioned earlier, one of these DOS houses where itinerant people like that would stay in, in, in lodging houses or DOS houses. But she had, she had spent all her money on drink and was drunk. So she went to the DOS house and the person in charge of the deputy or the uh, the second in command of it, actually, not the person who's in charge of it, threw her out and said, look, you can't, unless you've got your money, you can't stay here. So she said she made some sort of, this is quite a famous thing, that she'd be back because she'd, uh, she'd earned her money four times over and she'd go out and she'd earn it again. This was like a, about one o'clock in the morning. So she was confident of being able to go off, toddle off down the street, half drunk, in the middle of the night, and earn her money again and come back. And um, she staggered off down the road, actually met the actual deputy, the actual, per- sorry, the actual person in charge, who was a woman of the lodging house, who had befriended her and knew her, and who tried to persuade her to come back with her to the lodging house and would let her sleep there for free, but she was probably too proud or something, and she refused it and said, no, she'd go, and go off and uh, earn her money. Toddled off down the street and... Uh, about an hour and a half later, was found dead in a back street about um, three quarters of a mile away. And I'll describe how she was found. A man called Robert Paul, who lived nearby, this is in Bucks Road, which is a, a road round the back of where Whitechapel Tube Station is now. It's not called Bucks Road now, it's called Durwood Street. It's one of the... Uh, <laughs> A number of the streets associated with um, the Jack the Ripper crimes were renamed, partly due to local pressure. People didn't want the notoriety associated with it, with it, with it being called Bucks Row. So it was called, uh, it's now called Durwood Street. It's still there. It's been remodelled, but it's still there. So this guy called Robert Paul was walking down the road, dark street, on his way to work. And he sees in front, he was a carman as well, actually. He, he sees in front of him about 40 yards, 30 or 40 yards in front of him, someone standing in the middle of the road. And he carries on walking. This man then turns and walks towards him. And as the man approaches him, Robert Paul thinks the man's going to attack him. And as he swerves around him, the man 
taps him on the shoulder and says, oh, come and have a look at this over here. So they went over and there is Polly Nichols laying dead on the floor. And Robert Paul said that the man was standing where the body was. He didn't realise that initially, but once he came up to it, he realised that this guy had been standing right by the body. And that guy was Charles Lechmere, Charles Cross. So they had a look at the body, touched it, put Robert Paul, tried to put her dress was up to just below her her waist, just below her waist. So Robert Paul tried to put it down so her legs were covered, but could only bring it down to her knees. It was like cool. And he suggested propping her up because they didn't, didn't appreciate Robert Paul didn't appreciate that she was dead. He thought she might be like um, uh, fainted or something like that. And he suggested propping her up against the wall so she wasn't laying flat. And uh, Lechmi refused. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, then they went on. Then they both said, oh, we're both late for work. And they left the body. They left it there. This is the only victim who had abdominal wounds where they were covered. She had abdominal wounds, but they, they were the dress, they say, was up to just below her waist. So the stomach, which was cut open, was not on display. All the other Jack the Ripper victims, the, the, the culprit, left the victims on display, almost certainly to shock and awe whoever found them first, usually with their legs sort of akimbo and everything showing, everything showing, the guts cut open and everything. That was obviously part of his thing. But this is the only one where they weren't, where the where there was abdominal wounds and they weren't left on display. Now, the contention is that um, Robert Paul actually interrupted him in the act. And that's why they're not on display. because he, he pulled the dress down over the abdominal wounds to cover them up. And this is the only instance where someone was seen standing by the victim before they'd raised the alarm. In all the other cases, someone finds a body. They go off and find a policeman straight away or something like that. And also, as I said, Robert Paul thought that Lechmere, when he came up to him, his first thought was he was going to be attacked, probably because there was, you know, he had had a slightly fierce look in his face or something like that because he just murdered someone, you know. So the, the meet and greet between the two is odd. It's the only case where someone's been seen alone by a victim before raising the alarm. And then what, what happened is they went off. There's the only case where, where a body was abandoned. There was all strict houses there. There was about 200 yards up or even 100 yards up. There was a policeman on a, in a, in a box guarding a, a train depot, a coal depot for a train, train marshalling yards, maybe 150 yards away. They could have knocked him up and said, look, what's happened down there? They didn't. They walked off, left the body some way around the corner. They, but they did bump into a policeman. Uh, I'll come on to that in a second. But while they were away, another policeman found the body, a policeman called P.C. Neal. He found the body. And in all the newspaper reports for three days after that, P.C. Neal was regarded as the first finder. It's the only case where the, the, the initial narrative of how the body was found had to be changed three days later because Lechmere didn't come forward for three days to say what had happened. And they had to change the narrative and say, if you read any of the newspaper reports in the initial period, it's all PC Neil found the body, blah, blah, blah. Then it's so changed. Oh, no, actually, this other guy found the body. Lechmere. Not Lechmere. They called him Cross at the time. So 
while PC Neil finds the body for the second time, and so it's the only time when the body's been found, any of the bodies has been found twice, Lechmere, in the guise of Cross and Robert Paul, walk around the corner, eventually bump into this policeman who's called PC Misen, who's patrolling an area around the corner. And the conversation between Lechmere and Misen is a big, is, a, is also in dispute because according to PC Misen, he says, that Lechmere said to him, or, or the man, because he didn't get his name, he didn't get his name Cross or Lechmere, he says that, that a man who was a carman came up to him, who was dressed like a carman, they had a sort of, these, these trades had a, a look about them, so you could tell the guy looked like a carman, and um, they usually wore big aprons and stuff, and probably smelt of horses, I suppose, but uh, you could tell he was a carman, and he said, you're wanted by another policeman around the corner, there's a woman laying on the floor. That's all he said. So wanted by a policeman. That, that if that if what Misen that was Misen's account of what Lechmere told him. That means Lechmere lied to him, saying he's wanted by a policeman because there there wasn't a policeman there. There happened to be PC Neil, but Lechmere didn't know that. That's a fluke. So that means that Misen, according to Misen, Lechmere lied to him to tell him he was wanted by a policeman around the corner. That meant, that suggested that Lechmere was a messenger on behalf of a policeman, running an errand for a policeman, telling another policeman that he's wanted to go and help another officer, which is why MPC Meisen didn't bother getting his name. And that's also uh, because he didn't tell him that the woman was dead or, or seriously injured, just said she was laying on the floor. So that was like a less serious incident as well. Now, Lechmere, this is at the inquest, Lechmere at the inquest said that he he said to Misen, can you go around and help someone around the corner? There's a woman there. She might be dead. I'm not sure she's dead or she's possibly drunk. Nothing about another being wanted by another policeman. And with the definite possibility that the woman wasn't just laying on the floor, but that she was dead, which put, makes it negligent of Misen not taking his name and probably really should have take, made sure he went back with him to the scene of the incident. But instead, he let Lechmere and Paul go on on their own uh, without even taking their names. So there's this, there's, uh, on top of the, what I've already described to you, the strange scenario of when Robert Paul met Lechmere at the crime scene, immediately afterwards, there's a strange scenario between Lechmere and, and the policeman they met around the corner about who said what to who, with PC Meisen disputing in some crucial elements of what Lechmere is supposed to have said to him. Now, you might be wondering why Lechmere turned up at the inquest. OK, so Lechmere and Paul had walked past Meisen without so much as giving their name or address or anything much. Uh, so why did they turn up at either of them turn up at the inquest? The murder happened to the early hours of the Friday morning. The inquest where they turned up or where, where Lechmere turned up, was on the Monday. And in, in that in-between period, as I said, it was always PC Neil, this, the policeman who came upon the crime scene while they were walking down the road, was regarded as the first finder. Now, on the Sunday, there was a Sunday newspaper called Lloyd's Weekly News, and they had a newspaper, a story, a scoop in their newspaper. As I, I was mentioning to you earlier, that these newspapers were uh, competing with each other for unique stories 
And although this was, this, and this was at the outset of the Ripper crowd, as the story progressed with the other murders, they were all trying to scoop each other, all trying to get special insights into the murder, looking at different aspects to try and get a new angle to get new readers. But this was even happening at the outset. So Lloyd's Weekly News is a Sunday newspaper. They'd sent a journalist down to hover around Bucks Row, as all the newspapers did, to try and find some extra story. There was quite a few other stories. Tom Westcott actually in his book uh, uh, has covered some of these other stories about bloodstains here or this there. And the police were fending off all, all sorts of because um, the newspapers were trying to run their own parallel investigations to the murder, which was sort of hampering the police because the police were sort of being distracted. Or oh, perhaps we should be looking at this because the newspaper said that. But we, we but a police officers investigated that and just discounted it. But and it was causing all sorts of problems for them. This sort of thing happens nowadays as well. So the, Lloyd sent a news a, a reporter down to Bucks Row, and they bumped into Robert Paul. Robert Paul was coming home from work on the night of the murder, down Bucks Row, and somehow the Lloyd's journalist collared him and got a story out of him and found out that actually they had found the body first. But Lloyd sat on this story because they didn't publish until Sunday. So they didn't, they didn't go to the police and helpfully tell the police the, <laughs> this extra information they had. They sat on their own story until they could publish on Sunday with this sort of exclusive little story about Robert Paul walking down the road, seeing someone standing in front of him, going up to him, the bloke coming towards him, him being a bit frightened, thinking he's going to get uh, attacked, trying to avoid him, the bloke tapping on the shoulder. That whole story was fe- featured in this newspaper story. And then they go and find the PC around the corner and go on to work. Now, Paul maximised his role in the story and, and attacked the police for being negligent and all that sort of stuff. Paul comes across as quite an anti-police people. There was a lot of anti-police feeling in the East End amongst normal people. It, it was just one of those areas where there was a bit of a conflict between the population and the police, let's say. It's one of those sort of areas of the, of the world it used to be, arguably still is. So Paul comes across in his different testimony as being quite anti-police. So he, this story appeared in, in this newspaper on a Sunday. Sunday evening, late on Sunday evening, the police issued a big statement debunking all these misleading stories about blood that was in different newspapers, about trails of blood being here and there, about someone doing this, someone doing that. And one of the things they debunked was the story that anyone other than PC Neil had discovered the body. They were as late as Friday, sorry, Sunday evening. They were still happy with the, with what they regarded as the fact that PC Neil discovered the body first, no one else. So they discounted, in other words, the, the Robert Paul story of them finding the body first. Them, him and this unnamed person who he saw standing in the street, which was uh, Charles Cross. Charles Lechmere. So the next day is the Monday, and that's the, the the inquest started on the Saturday. They used to doing so. The body, the the murders on the Friday. The inquest opened on the Saturday. They used to, they used to work very quickly in those days, and then it was adjourned for a day because they didn't sit on Sunday, and then it reconvened on the um, Monday. And Mizan gives his his evidence, and he says, "Oh." Yeah, someone come up to you and tell me about the murder. You're wanted by an, another officer around the corner because there's a woman laying in the street. 
and they brought someone in who had been who was waiting in the corridor and they said is that the person who said that to you and he said he looked yeah that's the guy and it was cross or lechmere and the next witness to testify at the inquest was lechmere so why did he turn up i would say the reason he turned up was because he would have read the lloyd story the day before in which paul indicated that someone was standing in the middle of the street by the body and he was worried that the police would put out a dragnet to find him because Paul and Misen would have been able to identify him. And it was on his route to work from his house in Doveton Street to Pickford's in, in Broad Street. And uh, so he wanted to avoid a dragnet and being found unawares. He brought himself forward and turned up at the inquest to give his version of events, to, to spin the story his way. And that's essentially what he did. But he appeared as Charles Cross and not as Charles Lechmere. Yeah, so that, that, that's the main body of evidence. That's that's a lot of what's in that documentary, actually, the uh, the new evidence or the missing, ev- what's it called, the other one? Not the missing link, the missing evidence. Uh, the, Jack the Ripper, the new evidence. Yeah, or the missing evidence, yeah. The two, there's two different names for it, yeah. So he would have had a, a weapon, a murder weapon. I, I'm sure it's, it's it's speculation, but what do you think he did with it? And speaking of blood... If he stabbed her, wouldn't he have had blood splatter on him? Okay. The murder weapon. The other, sorry, the other interesting thing, I'll just um, throw this other thing in. When he appeared at the inquest, he also appeared wearing his uh, apron because Carmen wore aprons. And um, it's this incongruous detail. One of the newspaper reports describes how he was attired and he, he turned up in his work clothes at the, you know, at the inquest. And it, it's just a bit incongruous. Why would you wear an apron behind the, um, why wouldn't you at least take the apron off? And it was like he was trying to prove that he was this innocent Carmen wearing an, his apron onto into the witness stand. It, it's, uh, it's just slightly strange. But anyway, he probably was wearing an apron when he was walking down the road. And he probably just slipped it into a little pocket or something in his in his the, the weapon, the murder weapon. My presumption is he'd have had an apron and, and he just stuck it in a in a pocket in there or something. The blood, well, there's there's arguments that there wouldn't have been necessarily a lot of blood. Whoever was the culprit would have potentially had problems of getting blood on them and then walking away, getting away with blood on them, whoever they might have been. But there's also the presumption that most of them were actually strangled first, which either if they weren't strangled to death, they would have been strangled to virtually death, where their heart beat was so f- feeble that there was hardly any going to be hardly any arterial flow coming out of them when, when, they, when any arteries, main arteries are cut. And the blood would have virtually just oozed out rather than shot out in a, in, in a sort of uncontrollable way because there is no the, the murder scene there's only real evidence of arterial flow in the murder of Annie Chapman because there's a splash on a wall on her fence next to where she was which must have come out almost certainly out of her neck when the, when the uh, main arteries were cutting her neck but most of them not and there was very little blood at the scene of the uh, of the Polly Nichols murder. The doctor who came to the murder scene said there was only as much as you get in half a, half a glass of wine. 
if you drop half a glass of wine on your kitchen floor, it'll make quite a lot of mess, actually. And you'll think there's quite a lot of wine if you spread it over the floor. But it's not a lot when it's on a pavement. And that was all that really came out of her out of her when it was sort of oozing out, merely sort of through gravity rather than splashing everywhere. So she'd have been strangled first, which would avert, uh, probably didn't totally kill her, and, but almost. And then uh, I th- the doctor, who's called Dr. Llewellyn, believes that the um, abdominal wounds, the ones that were covered, were done first. Now, my belief, my, my sort of view is that he stood over her head after strangling her and she was on the floor, pulled her dress up and then cut the stomach with the dress pulled up in front. So if he's standing sort of or crouching over her head, putting the dress up so it's like a shield between him and the, any blood that might uh, splash, and then dropped it down, which is why they were covered. And I think he did the, the neck wounds as a sort of final coup de grace when he heard the footsteps, which happened to be Paul, coming up behind him. That's what the sequence of events, which I, which matches what Dr. Llewellyn thinks with the, with the stomach wounds being first and explains how he avoided getting blood on him. There was very little blood on the scene when if um, they were hit, Paul and Lechmere touched the body quite a lot while they were, you know, you know I said that, that Paul pulled her dress down and suggested propping her up. They were, Paul also touched her breast and felt he detected a slight murmur, like a shudder, which was probably her last sort of death shudder of the body when it was, you know, the bodies can sometimes give a sort of involuntary shudder for a while after death, uh, or not for a very long after death, but quite immediately after death, they can give a sort of involuntary shudder. And it was probably that that he felt, which is another indication that the body had only just been killed. If Lechmere was innocent or Paul, Paul was innocent, but they, neither of them got any blood. No one said, oh yeah, I could tell because I've got blood on my hands afterwards. They were touching, they were kneeling right close to the body while they were doing this. So there was no blood that had oozed out at that stage. None of this half pint of, half cup of glass of wine quantity of blood had oozed out while they were there because they didn't get any blood traces. They certainly didn't tread in it. There was no footprints away, of bloody footprints or anything. They, there's no reporting of them saying, hey, I had blood on my hands afterwards. When I got to work, I noticed I had blood on my hands or anything like that. So they clearly didn't get blood on them because there wasn't that much coming out. Whoever did it, did it quite cleanly as far as blood is concerned. Um, I'll come back to the blood in a second, but the, I haven't mentioned, I was sort of keeping this back a little bit, Pickford's at Broad Street. One of the goods that came into London from these other places like Birmingham and other towns in, in um, Britain, one of the main goods that they dealt with in deliveries was meat carcasses. Uh, for the London meat market. And so his apron probably had blood traces on anyway. So heaving up and lifting up these sides of meat uh, in his normal occupation. So he probably had sort of pinkish uh, traces on his apron anyway, as a matter of course, because of the nature of his job. But to come back to other aspects of the, um, the blood evidence, the blood evidence... In my opinion, this is one of these matters of controversy. The fact that they didn't, when, when subsequent witnesses came, such as Dr. Llewellyn and the policeman, they saw, they saw more, more blood. More blood became evident. The fact that more blood became evident 
as time progressed before Polly Nichols' body was taken to the uh, mortuary is indica- indicative that it was slowly oozing and flowing out of her body uh, through sort of gravity primarily because she was dead by then, which again suggests that when Lechmere and Paul were at the body, she was just very freshly killed. And Dr. Llewellyn, although times times given by doctors in that era don't totally stand up to modern scrutiny because modern doctors are much more cautious over uh, ascribing time of death and so forth. Then they were going much more on a medium time, the most likely time, which doesn't, you know, they're outlying cases when rigor mortis or different features, the clotting of blood and so forth, or the, 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 the rate at which a body cools depend on many factors. But there's a median range of, of factors of, of times. And they used to go, they used to put more credence on that in the, in that era than they do now. But Llewellyn, Dr. Llewellyn, the first doctor there, thought that she'd been killed about half an hour before when he saw the body, which was more or less exactly at the time when, when Lechmere was there. So it wasn't Lechmere. He must, you know, he must have unknowingly disturbed the killer moments before he got there by all, all these, all these different aspects of evidence would point towards that conclusion. And given the fact they had this strange meet and greet with Paul, given the fact that he gave a false name to the inquest, given the fact they had a dispute with PC Meisen almost immediately straight after, given the fact that he only came forward as a result of Paul's newspaper story, you know, you've got to think that he's a pretty good um, suspect there straight away for the, the case. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi. 
I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So obviously he's intimately connected to the Polly Nichols murder. But what about the other victims, the, the rest of the canonical five? I'll, I'll, I'll just say one thing before I go on to that. The police at the time thought, well, at the time of the, by the time he came forward several days later, the police already had a suspect, uh, number one, this guy called, you may or may not have heard a song called Leather Apron. Have you ever heard of this? Yes, yes, I have heard the name. Uh, it was called uh, Pizer was his real name. They they had this guy, they had him in their sights. He didn't do it. He was cleared, he had an alibi. But they had like a, a suspect number one. The police often, and you probably come across this in other cases you've uh, investigated, they can develop one-track minds on things. If they think they've got a suspect in the frame, that's the one they want, and they don't look elsewhere. They they they, they get tunnel vision. And they, I think they had tunnel vision at the time for Pizer, which is why they... And, and the other thing is, with serial crime, the police are quite poor, and I think this goes for this in England uh, and America. They don't have a great track record in solving serial crime or psychopath-type killers, because they've got a very good track record at catching normal murderers, because they're like, normally they're, uh, and they did then, they did in the Victorian time, because nearly always it's a member of the family, isn't it? Or someone you know, and there's bodies of evidence they can get and track down to find out who did it. But if it's an unknown, random, psychopath-type serial killer, they, they, they're, they're quite poor at solving those type cases, nearly always because they employ traditional normal evidence-based what's the motive there's psychopaths don't have motives their motive is they want to kill someone there's not a motive like they want to uh, rob them or, or defraud them of something or get an inheritance or 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 they're jealous or something like that those aren't the motivations of, of psychopaths and serial killers or the police think that the that the the culprit would be a madman, a total lunatic, because to commit this sort of crime, they have an assumption that it'd have to be some sort of monster in human form, and, and obviously so. So they thought that you'd have to be a madman, and mad people don't do serial crimes. They can't get away with. They can't get away with committing these sorts of crimes repeatedly, because you've got to have a strategy and tactics. There's cunning people, and. So they thought it'd be a madman or they thought it'd be a foreigner because there was a lot of prejudice, obviously, at the time. And they didn't think a sort of normal Englishman would do such a thing. So they thought it might be someone who's Jewish or some or foreign in some way. So those are the sorts of culprits that the priest at the time were looking at. So this Carmen, who's, who in his inquest testimony, is yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. 
I'm ever so humble as an average guy going to work. I've got a wife and kids at home. You know, they, they just didn't think that sort of per- didn't fit their their preconceptions at all. The, the, one of the haunting things about serial killers is they're usually very banal, normal people that you wouldn't have thought of it of them. That's one of the sort of rather disturbing things about this type of crime, actually, that that, that is the, the culprit, isn't it? Invariably, some bloke you wouldn't look twice at uh, rather than you know, a monster in human form. So to go back to your other question, uh, that was about where the, where the other the other crimes. Now, when the next murder I mentioned was, was Annie Chapman on, on the 8th, it was only, uh, sorry, eight days later, eight days later. It's the one when there's the shortest time scale between the two murders, between Polly Nichols and uh, Annie Chapman. Now, when Robert Paul and Lechmere left PC Misen, and Robert Paul didn't talk to PC Misen, he kept, he hovered out of the way. I think, um, he was anti-police, as I said. There's, there's a couple of different testimonies he gave where it's very clear that he, he didn't like the police. And he hovered, uh, in my opinion, he hovered at arm's length away from, well, Lechmere was talking to PC Misen because he didn't want to get involved with this policeman. He didn't like the police. And that's why he didn't really know what was said in the conversation between the two. Now, they walked away together. Now, interestingly, at the junction where they met PC Misen, there was two different routes that Lechmere could have taken to go to his work. And he chose the slightly longer route to go. And that was the same route that Robert Paul walked. Now, I think he walked with Robert Paul to find out where Robert Paul was going and to probably to bend his ear and you know, to talk to him along the way and give him uh, reassurance that he was innocent and it was nothing to do with it. Anyway, so they walked down the road. Have you ever been to the East End, by the way, East to London? No, I have not. Only vicariously through your YouTube series. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They, they walk off down the road together, and after about uh, 500 yards, Robert Paul goes off to a side turning where he works. Lechmere carries on to where he works. Now, the next murder, Annie Chapman was about a hundred yards from where Paul works. It was they walked past the murder scene. So they walk on their way after leaving PC Misen, Robert Paul and Lechmere walked past the next murder scene, which would happen eight days later. Now that's a bit of a coincidence for a start. Of all the streets in all the East End, that's where the next murder happened eight days later. Now in my series I, I give the reason for this and that is that, in my opinion, Lechmere, he had been, Robert Paul's newspaper story had forced Lechmere to come forward. It forced him to break cover. And um, let Paul himself hadn't come forward. This is the irony. Paul hadn't come forward. He'd come forward and sold his, probably sold his story to the newspaper, which put Lechmere in a bad position, made him come forward. And then Paul didn't come forward himself. So I think Lechmere chose a vi- chose his next victim near where Paul worked, near where he knew Paul worked, to get Paul in trouble and divert attention away from himself. And I think that's why it was quite soon after, the, the two murders were quite soon after each other, why it was in that location, very close to where Robert Paul worked, which they'd walked past the, the week before. And Paul was, in fact, um, the police 
searched for him. We know from two different sources, the police searched for him and found him and made him turn up at the inquest many days later. So I think he obviously was cleared by the police, but he was interrogated by them. And uh, one policeman who wrote his memoirs many years later said that he was under suspicion. So I think Lechmere killed Annie Chapman on, his, on that route where he'd walked past with Robert Paul to get Robert Paul in trouble and again to divert the investigation off into a sort of wild goose chase direction. So that's the, connect, that's the connection to the Annie Chapman murder. The next murder was Elizabeth Stride. When there were two, this is the double event I referred to before. There was two murders in one day, a double event on the 30th of September. So a bit of a gap. And Elizabeth Stride's murder is regarded by some people as being a bit of a, an exception because it was slightly off centre as far as the geography of the murders is concerned. It was south of two major trunk roads and slightly south of where all the other ones were. Still in the overall area of the East End, but slightly off from, from the other. The others are in a much more tight cluster. And um, it leads some people to think Stride wasn't a, a ripper victim. And also because Stride, uh, she only had her throat cut. She didn't have any abdominal wounds. Annie Chapman, the one before, I'll, I'll just say she was left very brutally uh, cut open and very much on display. You know, I mentioned about how the ripper would have had, had this ritual where he wanted to leave the bodies left blatantly on display as a, as a shock and awe. Sort of, uh, that was obviously part of the thing that, that, that is, is motivation. Uh, Stride only had her throat cut, she only had abdominal wounds. So the theory is that the ripper, the, this, this someone called Louis, Louis Dimschutz was coming into the yard where the body was found and disturbed the, the, the culprit who then, he was unfulfilled, ran off, found another victim who was Catherine Eddowes and killed her and then did fulfill the whole shock and awe full display ritual. And the, the, that's why it's called the double event. And the theory is that he was unfulfilled with Liz Stride and went on and caught uh, um, Catherine Eddowes and killed her. Now, but some people think that they were two unconnected murders, which just doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, Lechmere's mother lived about 200 yards from where Lestride was killed. She was killed on a Saturday night. That would have been the only night. It was earlier than the other ones as well. It was about an hour and a half earlier than any of the other murders. And um, she was killed about 200 yards on Saturday night. It's the only, Sunday was the only day off in those days. People worked six day weeks. So commonly, most people had the Sunday off, but no other day. So this was the only murder that preceded the double event with the only murders that preceded a, a normal day off. So whoever did it could have been out drinking and, and having a, a night off. So my presumption is that he went down to visit his mother. One of his daughters was brought up by his mother. He had several children, but one of them, for some reason or another, was brought up by his mother. So his mother was living near the murder scene of Liz Stride with one of his daughters in an area where he'd only moved away from in June because he lived around the corner as well. So he had all sorts of connections to that area. So my presumption is he was going back to his old, old stamping ground on Saturday night, his night off, preceding his night off, going to see his mother or his daughter, perhaps. And don't forget, his mother was living with her second bigamous husband by this stage, a guy called Fosdyke. He came away, bumped into this stride killed her. Didn't fulfill his whole 
uh, ritual. So he went off to find another victim. Now, the other victim, Catherine Eddowes, was killed in an area that was a, uh, an area that was well known for street prostitutes, but was also on his old route to work from when he used to live in that district near his mother up till he moved in June, I've mentioned. His old route to work from his old house, which was called James Street, to Pickford's at Broad Street would have taken him right past the site where Catherine Eddowes was murdered. So he would have been familiar with that area from his old route to work. So that is why I think he, he was unfulfilled. He knew he'd find prostitutes there. So he went there, killed Catherine Eddowes. And then the next interesting thing is that part of Catherine Eddowes' apron was found in a doorway along with some graffiti. And the graffiti, it's quite famous, this. It said, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And it was on a, a doorway. And the location of this doorway where the graffiti was found and where the apron, which was cut away from Catherine Eddowes' body, her apron was, half of her apron was cut away, covered in blood, and it matched the part of apron that was still attached to the body. So it's unequivocally, this a bit of apron belonged to Catherine Eddowes. The victim was killed in this place called Mitre Square. Again, brutally butchered and left on display. This apron part was found in this stairwell underneath this graffiti. So clearly the, the Ripper had left it there after killing Catherine Eddowes. If you go from Mitre Square, where Catherine Eddowes was found, to Galston Street, which is where this doorway was, it's in a direct line, a direct route back to Lechmere's house points directly to where Lechmere lived. So this is what he would have done. He would have killed Stride, visiting his mother, unfulfilled, went to where he knew he'd find prostitutes in the area, uh, uh, now in Allgate, where he found Casnellos, killed her in Mitre Square, for some obscure reason, cut away part of her apron, dumped it on his direct route back home. So there's a, there's a neat, if you look at the map, it's a neat sort of triangle of, of geography there. The last victim of the five is um, Mary Kelly. That, again, was on, on his direct route to work to Pickford's in the, in the uh, early hours of the morning. And well, it would have been a work day, so he'd have been walking past her on his way to work. If he didn't do it, you know, he walked past her, her dead body while she was laying dead in her flat, in her little flat that she had. So, um, you know, he either, either walked past all these dead bodies or he did it himself. And the street, it appears there were thousands of people around there. Thousands of people weren't walking down the streets in the middle of the night because the reports are there, there just weren't thousands, there wasn't many people walking about in the middle of the night. And there is a connection between him and Mary Kelly as well that I've found. Um, because some people think that the culprit knew Mary Kelly for various reasons, but, um, there is a sort of the guy who lived with her, who was probably her pimp a few years before. Lechmere's kids went to the same school as the guy who was almost certainly Mary Kelly's pimp. So they may have known each other, maybe he'd gone around and visited the kids or something, and may have known Mary Kelly conceivably. But that's the only, I don't know of any other suspects whether someone can establish a link between them, and even a potential link between them and Mary Kelly. Um, so there are there are ways I can connect him. Most of the Ripper, victim, Ripper suspects, you can't provide any connection at all. I can actually provide sort of scenes of crime connections with Lechmere to all of the murders, including the ones, the non, the other ones apart from the five, like Martha Tabram, for example, or 
even Rose Milet or Alice McKenzie in the Pynchon Street Torso, which I've mentioned earlier. The Pynchon Street Torso, Lechmere used to live in Pynchon Street, the, where, the road where the torso was found. It, it, you know, it's like everywhere there's a murder, you can, Lechmere's got a, a direct connection to almost. Wow. So there are some ripperologists out there. Um, and again, I've had Donald Rumbelow, Tom Westcott on his guests. They don't believe that the identity of Jack the Ripper has been discovered yet. What are their arguments against Charles Lechmere as the killer? And how would you counter those arguments? Um, some people think that you wouldn't kill on your way to work, for example. But you can point to ones who did. Ridgeway did. Some people would think when when Robert Paul was coming up to him that he should have run away. But other people, I've had policemen look at the case. Uh, it's in the, the, the new evidence documentary, uh, Murder Squad Superintendent. He immediately thought that the initial reaction of a psychopathic serial killer would be to turn and confront. It's, it's the fight, fight or flight syndrome. What is your... Uh, initial reaction to be to being uh, confronted would you run away or would you turn and face your face the situation and take control of the situation by turning and facing and controlling the situation by walking up to robert paul he was doing fight and not flight but that is what a, a psychopathic serial killer would do rather than run away but a normal person would probably think that you should run away but that's because a normal person isn't a psychopathic serial killer and so they can't put it into the mind of what they were doing. But that's one of the objections, that he should have run away. Other people refuse to believe that Mizen was right. There's lots of arguments over the Mizen conversation about whether you're wanted by a policeman down the road, all that sort of thing. It's, it's argued over. These things are argued over in every single point. Every single point is argued over. I think it's a confounding case. because For him to be innocent, every, he has to be cleared of every one of these points, really. Even almost one of them would make him guilty, but they, they would argue on every one of them. It is a very argued over case. The, the Lechmere case is very much argued over, very bitterly argued over. In Ripperology, there's lots of very, very bitter arguments over all these sorts of things. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why I don't want to wade into uh, Ripperology myself. I think it would be way too overwhelming. Do you feel that sometimes, that the number of suspects, theories, seem so vast? Well, it can be quite with, with some people, they get, they, get, they get very personal and very bitter about these things. But um, Tom, for example, Tom Westcott, I've crossed swords with him over me. He takes things in pretty good cheer, to be fair to him, when you, when you um, discuss one of his theories. Because the theories aren't just about... Murder. Some people have a theory about how the police investigates the case. So it's not just a theory, necessarily a theory about a different suspect. There's theories about all sorts of things which aren't necessarily suspect related, if you sort of mean. Like what sort of suspect should you be looking for rather than a specific suspect or, you know, how the police investigated the case or, or things like that. And so the, so the theorizing isn't restricted to suspects. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. And, some people take criticism of their theory better than others, and some people are, are, are more open-minded to discussion and the cut and thrust of debate than others, as they are on, on any topic. But um, it, can, it is it, it, can, it is a very bitchy, a very bitchy world. If you were to look at any of the, there's a couple of forums 
um, I don't know if you've ever seen them. There's a couple of chat forums which are very uh, tend to be very bitchy in in the way uh, the, the discourse is conducted. I think here in the states it, it might be similar to the JFK assassination case. There are so many conspiracy theories, so much debate out there still. Yes, it is, and quite, and there's the there's a, a a British sort of chapter of that, if you like. And they're all, they're always in the yard, obviously, about the, the ins and outs of that case. Any, you know, Princess Diana, the death of Princess Diana, all these things, uh, or the Twin Towers, you know, they all, all these things bring in, um, people with different theories, don't they? Oh, absolutely. So tell us about the house of Lechmere. Where can people find you? Well, it's on, it's on YouTube. I'm just researching at the moment, I said the torsos, I'm, I haven't done an episode for a couple of weeks because I'm doing one on the first of these torsos that I was telling you about, which requires quite a lot of uh, extra research and uh, visiting the locations where the bit, different bits of the body parts, because a torso, you know, you'd get part of the abdomen here, a thigh there, a leg there, and I want to go to all the different dumping grounds to find all the different exact spots where each bit was left to film and show and uh, it's called the Raynham Torso, and that's the one I'm working on at the moment. But um, that would be quite groundbreaking. I say no one's ever shown all the different places where, where the Raynham Torso, different bits of the Raynham Torso. It's always named after the fir- where the first bit was found. There's a village called Raynham on the, on further down the River Thames, and uh, a bit the first part was found near this uh, village called Raynham, but other bits were found elsewhere, uh, all, all over London actually. And, uh, so I'm doing research on that at the moment. But that, it's called The House of Lechmere. It's on, um, YouTube. Virtually everything I've told you with maps, because most people are unfamiliar with the geography of the area to show how close it all is. Hopefully I'll, I've done it in, um, an intelligible way so you can follow the, uh, what happened. Uh, and hopefully I've done it in a way that if you're not an expert, you can follow it as well. Yeah, I found the maps very, very helpful. Um, have, having visuals especially when talking about Lechmere's roots, patterns. It, it, it made it very clear. Not necessarily a fan of ge- geographic profiling, but when you find a culprit that, that's been done, like Bundy, give Bundy an example, you could see how he drove about and went to different places. And when he was at this town, there's murders there. This town, it, it, when you know he's the culprit, and you can see where the murders are. It fits a hand to a glove, obviously, doesn't it? You think, oh, God, look, that's why there was a pattern of murders there. That's why there was a pattern of murders there, because of his movements. And when you know – and if you fit Lechmere to that, it just fits like a glove, The whole, all these different murders. If, as I say, not just the Jack the Riff ones, but a whole range of other ones as well. Well, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. That's okay. I hope it wasn't too too uh, – detailed or going on and on too much very helpful thanks again okay then again i have been speaking to jack the ripper expert edward stowe his video series the house of lechmere can be found on youtube this has been another episode of the most notorious podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world i'm eric rivenis and have a safe tomorrow.